This is Reset. I'm Susie Ann, in for Sasha Ann Simons. It's Friday. It's noon. So you know what time it is. Time for our weekly news recap, where we catch you up on the biggest state and local stories you might have missed but need to know about. Stories like these. We take you to Chicago now, where the mayor lost re-election in a resounding defeat that could have implications for big city Democrats. We fought the right fights, and we put this city on a better path. No doubt about it. You turned our hope into reality because you believe that a better Chicago is possible. This city has never really been the city that works for everyone, but it will be when I am mayor. Our panel this week to help break down the mayor's race and more includes WBEZ City Politics reporter Mariah Wolfel. Hey, Mariah. Hey, good to be here. Also with us, Maudlin Ihejerica, recently retired columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times, who's now an independent journalist and journalism grant major for the Field Foundation. Welcome back, Maudlin. Thank you. And WTTW Chicago Politics reporter Heather Sharon is back with us. Hey, Heather. Hey, Susie. All right. Well, uh, you know, all elections all the time. Uh, The race for Chicago's mayor is now entering its next phase. Uh, Before we jump into that, let's take a minute to reflect. Anyone surprised we ended up with Vallis and Johnson heading to a runoff? Uh, Mariah, what, what did you think? I think, you know, that was surely one of the top possibilities. Um, it, it was a question of whether Lightfoot was going to be able to pull through, you know, Garcia and Johnson, come up right up the middle if that progressive vote was split. But, you know, we saw Johnson... Um, you know, having a lot of support on the lakefront, far lakefront, where light, where Lightfoot, you know, had support in 2019, and you know, Vallis has been purported to be a runner, a, a, a front runner for weeks now. So it, it wasn't necessarily surprising. It was surprising, kind of how quickly it was decided. Um, and you know, I, I was surprised by how quickly Mayor Lightfoot conceded. But, yeah. um, but that that particular. Uh, duo isn't, isn't, I don't think, necessarily shocking. Yeah. Well, what did you think, Maudlin? This was not a surprise at all. There were elements that were quite surprising, such as the fact that Chewy did not even register. Mm. Um, that was quite, quite surprising. Um, but no, we all knew that Vallis was front runner. He was an assumed um, runoff participant going into the election. The Brandon was the next and we all knew that 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 Lori, everyone but Lori knew that Lori was not going to be in the right. Right. Heather, any surprises for you? So I I don't know that we can really understand just truly how shocking it was that an incumbent mayor of the city of Chicago not only lost re-election, but did not even advance to the final round of voting. And, you know, there's been a lot of coverage in this race in the national media. And I think that it's worth reflecting on the fact for the first time in 40 years, Chicago voters rejected a mayor. And I don't think that... That it is a coincidence, perhaps, that it, both times it was women running for re-election, and it will sort of now be left for everybody to grapple with how much did racism and sexism play into the problems that Lori Lightfoot faced while in office, while, of course, suffering any number of self-inflicted wounds and crises beyond her control. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, let's dissect what voters did on Tuesday. Uh, Heather, where were Vallis and Johnson strongest? So uh, Vallis was has clearly created a base in by consolidating conservative and conservative, conservative moderate voters in Chicago. And they are primarily concentrated on the northwest side and the southwest side of the city. And that is n- not coincidentally where the vast majority of police officers, firefighters mm-hmm. and city workers live because they have to live within the city limits. Johnson, I think, made it into the runoff um, on the base of, of two areas of strength. One, the northwest side of Chicago, which has really become the center and the beating heart of Chicago's Latino progressive community that did not back Jesus Chuy Garcia, but instead mm-hmm. backed Johnson in, I think, a significant way. Also, he won a significant number of votes along the lakefront, and that combined sort of vaulted him into the runoff. And that is really the contest that that we're looking at here. Well, despite both being Democrats, these two candidates have very different visions for Chicago. And, and they have already started to throw some punches, of course. Uh, let's hear from Brandon Johnson. This is the truth about Paul Vallis. He has literally failed everywhere he has gone. In fact, Paul Vallis is the author of The Tale of Two Cities. So what do you all think? I mean, will uh, Johnson be able to convince voters that Vallis has failed everywhere he's gone? So, I mean, he is going to make that argument, and we're going to hear a lot about Vallis's history as uh, CEO of the Chicago Public mm-hmm. School System between 1995 and 2001. And for to give you a sense of how long ago that truly was, I was a high school senior in 1996, <laughs> and I, I am no longer young. But he also led school districts in New Orleans and Bridgeport and Philadelphia. So we're going to see more coverage of sort of of that uh, uh, of that history. But it, it you know there is just such a stark contrast between these two candidates because not only is Brandon Johnson supported by the teachers union, not only is he a member of the teachers union and an employee of the teachers union, they the the modern incarnation of the Chicago Teachers Union formed in opposition to Paul Vallis, who really led this national effort to change public school systems to charter school system. Yeah. So sort of, you know, everybody's got a significant amount of, of skin and heart in this game. Yeah, it is. It is somewhat ironic that that. Paul Vallis's um, style of leadership at CPS really bred, you know, Brandon Johnson, who who he is and, you know, the movement that he came out of from the Chicago Teachers Union. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get into those stark differences in just a sec. But uh, as a reminder, four years ago, Paul Vallis ran for mayor and got only 5 percent of the vote. Um, of course, not this time around. Uh, in case anyone missed his message in the campaign, his election night rally had police bagpipers, and he spoke to supporters from a podium with public safety first signs behind him. Let's hear from Vallis. Public safety is the fundamental right of every American. It is a civil right. And it is the principal responsibility of government. And we will have a safe Chicago. We will make Chicago the safest city in America. And we've mentioned the the starkly different visions of how to make the city safer. Uh, and that seems to be grabbing a lot of national headlines. Maudlin, what, what do you think, why do you think this has captured the nation's attention? Because Chicago is kind of the epitome of um, the race issue. 
when you think about the fact that the very first black woman mayor, um, as Heather so adequately points out, you know, lost, and, and this is the second woman, yes, but this is the first black woman mayor, the first openly gay mayor. Mm-hmm. And so the history that was tossed out um, has a lot to do with racism and sexism. And so, you know, you talk about a city that is the epitome of the race clash, and you talk about a city that is the epitome of the crime question, the crime question that has plagued New York, that has plagued Oregon, that has plagued plagued so many other urban areas. That's why Chicago is being watched closely. And unfortunately, it is going to come down to race because that is Chicago's way. Yeah. And and do you think that um, this might also be sort of um, a mini debate on on, uh, left and right leaning politics? Oh, there's no doubt that the national press will, for better or for worse, cast this race as a battle of the heart, for the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. And I think that that analysis is correct um, only to about 10 percent of truth because um, there is so much other at stake. There is so much more difference between Vallis and Johnson than just sort of this sort of sense of are you tough on crime or are you not tough on crime? But I also don't think that it's you know, a coincidence or unrelated that both of these candidates made it, made it into the runoff and had the clearest positions on public safety and crime. Vallis was very clear from day one, and I'm sure Mariah experienced this too. If you asked him a question about any topic, he brought it back to the need to hire more Chicago police officers. And if you asked Johnson a question on any topic, he talked about the need to invest in programs that prevent crime from taking place in the first place. And those are two diametrically opposed approaches to the same question. And now Chicago is going to have to decide which approach to take. Yeah. I mean, Mariah, you you were watching uh, both of those candidates. What, What are your thoughts on their divergent philosophies on fighting crime? Well, I, I think Heather put it put it well. And another way this is playing out is with Brandon Johnson really kind of making a political calculus to shy away from this, you know, phrase defund the police that Vallis is going to try to hit him very hard on on the campaign trail for his ca- past, uh, you know, comments saying that that's a real political goal. Brandon Johnson has said, you know, his uh, public safety plan can't be reduced to a hashtag. Um, and and I don't know if, uh, you know, he's 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 trying to maintain his progressive base by continuing to talk about investing in the root causes of violence while also um, while also having to appeal to more moderate voters and, and shying away from that phrase. And and I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that progressive voters r- will really mind him shying away from that phrase. I think that they uh, largely understand that he has a political calculus to make and that, um, you know, that phrase has has become a way to kind of shoot yourself in the foot as a candidate, um, you know. And so so we're going to continue to see that divisiveness on the on the campaign trail. Yeah. Well, another topic they have very different views on is education. We've mentioned Vallis was a former CPS CEO, Johnson, a, a former teacher, uh, very different backgrounds in education. Uh, Maudlin, do you think we're going to be hearing a lot about education in the next four to five weeks? Absolutely. Because, you know, when it really comes down to it, Public safety and crime is public safety and crime. How many different ways can you dissect and analyze public safety and crime? We both want the city to be more safe. That's, that's all, in the end, that's all they can say, right? Okay, so how do you do that? 
that's that's going to get down to very minuscule differences. The key here, the one that's going to be highlighted, because we're all sick of hearing about crime and the buzzwords. You're all saying the same thing. And quite frankly, Lori Lightfoot couldn't change crime in four years. You're not going to come in and change crime. This is something we've wrestled with for decades. Give me a break, right? So it's going to come down to education. They're going to have to highlight Brandon Johnson is going to have to hammer on education. And we're going to hear a lot about the fact that Paul Vallis was really the, 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 the creator of the charter school system here in Chicago and, and, and started the ball rolling on the closure of schools. And that's a huge issue as we approach the anniversary, the anniversary of the first school's closings. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be a major issue. Yeah, definitely. I mean, well, Mariah, I mean, it also seems to, uh, you know, maybe be a, a clear union battle brewing between the candidates, right? Yeah, I don't think you could have picked a more, you know, divisive matchup between a candidate who is employed and backed by the Chicago Teachers Union and, you know, as we talked about earlier, a candidate who led CPS and really, you know, is the backbone behind a lot of the policies that CTU has become so politically charged and amped up against. Um, And it's hard to imagine... uh, you know, labor peace with the Chicago Teachers Union if Paul Vallis were to become mayor. At the same time, you know, Brandon Johnson has faced questions about his ability to be independent from the CTU, to take a look at the books when he gets in office and make potentially tough decisions about school funding. Um, but uh, it, it's definitely education, you know, going to be continue to be just a top talked about. And and I'm you're you're seeing that at press conferences. I mean, I went to two of Paul Vallis's press conferences, and everyone has, you know, become a conversation about education. And so it's just going to continue to be a main theme. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at public safety and education. I mean, Vallis was endorsed by the uh, police union and, and Johnson endorsed by the teachers union. So it's just interesting backings there. This is Reset. I'm Susie Ann in for Sasha Ann Simons. It's Friday, so we're breaking down the biggest stories of the week with a panel of wonderful Chicago journalists, WBEZ City Politics reporter Mariah Wolfel, WTTW Chicago Politics re- reporter Heather Sharon, and Maudlin Ihejerica, recently retired columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. So what's next for these two candidates? I mean, what do you think we're going to see in the next four to five weeks leading up to the runoff? An all-out sprint, yeah. <laughs> because it's only it's you know only about a month. Today is March third. The election is is April fourth. So there is very little time for really anything to happen that will significantly change the contours of the election until before people start voting. So the question is, is you know, does the thirty six percent that Vallis got in the first round represent his ceiling or his floor? Does the twenty percent that Brandon Johnson got um represent his ceiling or his floor? Or will he be able to do what he hoped to do months ago before the first round of voting and unite Chicago's progressive community and get the get the backing of the voters who voted for Jesus Chuy Garcia and sort of build from there? Those are the fundamental questions. I think that, you know, one of the things that we're going to be looking at is absolutely the issue of both Vallis and and, and Brandon going for the voters who voted for the other seven candidates. Um, and what we're going to see is that Brandon Johnson, whose support did not come from the black community mm-hmm. because there were so many black candidates who each had they, their particular segment of the black community, is going to now 
be able to reach out to that seg- those segments of the black community who did want a black candidate or a candidate of color as mayor of the city of Chicago. And I think he has a better chance of reaching out and grabbing that votership than Paul Vallis. I mean, we're, we are losing time here. So uh, I just want to wrap up this segment with what, um, what, why do we think voters uh, went away from Lori this time around? Well, I think that um, Mayor Lightfoot has some very significant policy achievements under her belt. Um, you know, we could talk about the Chicago Casino. We could talk about the extension of the red line, the co-responder 911 pilot program. But um, at the end of the day, and, and you know, we need to think about uh, how sexism and racism does play a role in this. But at the end of the day, I think Chicago voters largely communicated that demeanor also matters. I think Lightfoot um, did not do herself any favors uh, in multiple, um, you know, like less than poised dealings with Governor J.B. Pritzker, State's Attorney Kim Fox, the Chicago City Council. And so you have to also you have to also weigh her record on um her ability to be a role model uh, for the city of Chicago and and a, and a leader that people, you know, want to look up to. And again, I'll reiterate, sexism, racism, greatly at play here because she did inherit all of these problems, many of them that had never been seen before. You get the pandemic, you get civil unrest in the wake of George Floyd, something that was sweeping the nation. Yeah. So, you know, she really did begin with a handicap. And I think that she's she was held to a higher standard. And in the end, I think demeanor, as Mariah said, you know, did come into play. And But unfortunately, I think I will give her a, a little bit of deference here because as a woman, she would have had to stand up. She would have had to be firm and, 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 and portray herself as strong and um, in order to push and pass those policies that, that Mariah described. Those are, those are significant, significant achievements. So, you know, I do give her all of that deference. She had to portray a strong personality. Unfortunately, in the end, you have to know how to collaborate. You have to know how to unify and you have to use the humility and you have to portray some measure of softness. Yeah. Well, uh, really quickly, um, we know that uh, former Illinois Secretary of State Jesse White endorsed Paul Vallis, as did Alderman Walter Burnett. Do you think Lightfoot is going to endorse a candidate here? So I try not to make predictions because that is a fool's game. But I would be surprised if she endorsed Paul, either Paul Vallis or Brandon Johnson. And I don't think that either of them would welcome her endorsement, frankly. Um, you know, the only incumbent alder person to lose their seat on Tuesday was 12 Ford Alderman Annabelle Abarca, who was appointed by Lightfoot. None of the other three Lightfoot appointees to the city councils won their seats outright. I do not think that a Lightfoot endorsement would help either Vallis or Johnson. And neither of them uh, have said outright that they'll seek it. So I, I think Heather, you know, Heather's analysis is right. She's, we're not, we're just not sure if either of them would really want a Lightfoot endorsement. Though, you know, that being said, 80,000 plus people voted for Lightfoot. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know how, how her and how those voters might, you know, take her, take her word, but it's, it's unclear if either of them will be, We'll be seeking it, and I would be shocked if Lightfoot gave it. She hit Vallis so hard on the campaign trail, painting him as a Republican. And when you look at Brandon Johnson, I mean, the CTU has been one of her biggest Mm -hmm. enemies throughout her tenure. 
That's WBEZ's Mariah Wolfel, WTTW's Heather Sharon, and Maudlin Ihejerica, recently retired columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. We're just getting started. Stick around because there's plenty more news to cover. This is Reset. I'm Susie On, and for Sasha Ann Simons. Back now with more Reset and more of the weekly news recap. With us now is a panel of journalists breaking down the biggest state and local stories. So let's get back into it. After 54 years, Chicago's 14th ward will be getting a new alder person who's not named Ed Burke. Four longtime alder people are retiring in the 43rd, 44th, 46th, and 48th wards. Chicago's 43rd ward in the Lincoln Park neighborhood is one of several city council races headed for the April runoff. Chicagoans aren't just voting for mayor and aldermen. Voters will also select 66 people to fill newly created police oversight positions. All 22 police districts across Across the city will now have three people representing them. With us is WBEZ's city politics reporter Mariah Wolfel, WTTW Channel 11's Chicago politics reporter Heather Sharon, and independent journalist Maudlin Ihajerica, recently retired columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. So back to Tuesday's election, uh, but now changing focus on city council, which is on the verge of some big changes. Quite a few new faces coming to council chambers Heather, Mariah, uh, which races really stood out for you? Well, I don't think that we can not take a moment and note that Ed Burke will no longer be the alderman of the 14th Ward on the southwest side. He was in office since 1969, and he will leave under indictment and facing trial in 2024 for a host of corruption charges. He will be replaced by Jelou Gutierrez, who will be the first Latina to represent that ward. And she was, of course, supported by Jesus Chuy Garcia. And this is really the culmination of a 40-year-long grudge match between Burke and uh, Garcia. And when she takes office, it will really be another indication that just like in 2019, the city council will be more progressive, it will be less white, and it will be more Latino. And regardless of what happens with about the dozen runoffs that we at least we expect in April, um, that is certain that that will the city council of 2023 will not move to the right after, you know, as opposed to 2019, but it will just move further to the progressive side of things. Yeah. No, I was going to highlight the same race. This is a big moment for the residents of the 14th Ward who, you know, critics of Ed Burke say that they've been long seeking um, better representation for the growing Latino community on the southwest side. This is a ward that's, you know, nearly 90 percent Latino. And um, I, I think people are looking forward to having that that representation of this ward. Burke, you know, silently quitting, not filing his paperwork uh, to run for real election, um, you know, as he faces corruption, uh, corruption charges, but also as, you know, the Chicago City Council really kind of helped give him the boot with the way they remapped that ward and took out, you know, parts of Garfield Ridge that really went uh, went hard for Burke in, in previous elections. Yeah, you know, I think that is absolutely one of the most significant uh, changes because that ward has been predominantly Latino for so long, and it has really been an affront that no one could oust Burke. Um, and he continued to win 
that 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 ward was actually quite surprising to many. The other ward that uh, the other race that uh, that was significant to me was the 34th ward. Just acknowledging that Carrie Austin finally um, is leaving, you know, mm-hmm. under indictment again, another alderman under indictment. And um, that for the first time, you know, the 34th Ward will have a new, you know, she's a long time, yeah. right? Um, several decades. And so for the first time, the 34th Ward would have a, will have a new alderman. Of course, the 34th Ward, just like the fort, 14th, has been like totally redrawn. And it doesn't even look like anything, doesn't look anything like what it did under Carrie Austin. Yeah. Well, you know, we've got indictments, uh, but we also have a record number of retirements this term. Um, Heather, how about we walk through some of the new aldermen taking over for long term, long time aldermen who have resigned? So in the 26th Ward, uh, Roberto Maldonado filed to run for reelection, but then dropped his bid for reelection and endorsed Jesse Fuentes, who is has been an organizer in Chicago's the, really the heart of Chicago's Puerto Rican community. And she defeated not only Julian Jumpin Perez, the uh, legendary house music DJ, but also Angie Gonzalez Rodriguez, who is the 26th Ward's committee person. Um, and she won that race outright, despite being opposed by the Fraternal Order of Police. And I wrote about the $16,000 that the Fraternal Order of Police contributed to Perez's campaign to highlight the fact that Fuentes, when she was 17 and 18, had been arrested, and yeah. that somehow that that made Made her as a 32-year-old woman unqualified to hold this hold to hold public office, and I think that a lot of people were watching that race to sort of see what how effective that technique would be, and it was not effective at all. And I think in a number of races, we saw candidates backed by the Fraternal Order of Police um, not do very well, with two exceptions. In the 10th Ward, Peter Chico, a Chicago police officer, will advance to the runoff, and in the 11th Ward, Anthony Ciaravino will face Alder. And Nicole Lee to represent that ward. Um, but those, I think, were the exceptions to the rule. Whereas some uh, groups like United Working Families, which is very closely tied to the Chicago Teachers Union, was far more successful in elected, uh, electing its, its chosen candidates um, in the races where they um, were active. Yeah, I think on multiple fronts, um, aside from the mayoral race, of course, you saw the FOP um, kind of, kind of, you know, take some hits in the in the uh, in the races that they supported, both on the aldermanic front and in the um, police district council races. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the empowering communities for public safety coalition. I think they said that they backed, they helped elect about forty two of the sixty six candidates, um, and I, I think the the FOP only really seeing around seven or eight successful races, despite. Um, you know, pushing for nearly 20 candidates. And we'll get into a little bit of that. But before I do, another another scandal plagued <laughs> election of Northwest Side Alderman James Gardner of the 45th Ward. Uh, Mariah, what happened in that race? So it does look like Gardner will be heading to a runoff with, you know, a little more than 49 percent of the vote. You know, he did get a significant share, but he will um, face the second largest vote getter, Megan Mathias, um, a small business owner and attorney. And this is amid, you know, multiple scandals plaguing Gardner in just his first four years in office, including a um, probe by the FBI that Heather first reported on for um, potentially uh, retaliating against uh, or denying constituent services to residents who did not agree with his um, 
you know, policy and aldermanicship, uh, as well as, you know, profane text messages about political colleagues. And so he has been, you know, one of the most embattled Chicago aldermen in the past four years. And that's among the ranks of, you know, multiple that are that faced federal corruption charges in this last term. I'm absolutely fascinated by this race, not only because he may be forced into a runoff by literally a handful of votes, but also this ward was specifically redrawn to help him. Mm. It, this ward was changed to basically move further northwest to include parts of Edgebrook and Wildwood where there are more conservative-leaning voters rather from the um, uh, sort of the, the more progressive bastions of of Southern Portage Park and Old Irving Park. And it was really a sense that that this was going to help him get into that, you know, win the seat outright. Uh, What's interesting, though, is that not only was this ward redrawn to help him win voters, Megan Mathias, who is the second place finisher, was actually drawn out of the 45th ward. So she, you know, is eligible to run for the 45th ward and to serve as the 45th ward alderman. If she runs for re-election, if she's elected in 2027, she would have to move into the new ward. But that really goes to show sort of the lengths that Alderman Gardner's colleagues went to try to help him, despite the fact that he is, you know, not under one inspector general investigation, but multiple inspector general investigation, most recently for harassing people, collecting signatures for other people who are running in the race. So just just a a truly microcosm of Chicago politics right here. Definitely. This is Reset. I'm Susie Ann in for Sasha Ann Simons. It's Friday, so we're breaking down the biggest stories of the week with a panel of wonderful Chicago journalists, WBEZ City Politics reporter Mariah Wolfel, WTTW Chicago Politics reporter Heather Sharon, and Madeline Ihejerica, recently retired columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, and, and, and of course, the um, incumbents who did seek re-election largely were re-elected, right? They were. The power of incumbency remains undefeated, mostly. Well, more than a dozen races for city council members appear headed for a runoff in April. Um, Walk us through who are some of those who are headed to the runoff. Well, in the 30th Ward, you're going to find Jessica Gutierrez, who's the daughter of former former congressperson Louis Gutierrez, facing Ruth Cruz in really a sort of battle of the two power bases in Chicago's Latino community. So Jessica Gutierrez has aligned herself with with Jesus Chuy Garcia and is sort of more progressive, while Ruth Cruz was a a former employee of retiring Alderman Ariel Reboiris. So that's sort of those two sort of factions battling for power in the the area around Belmont and Cragen. You know, I'm also fascinated by the 11th word. You know, Nicole Lee, if she's elected, would be the first Chinese-American and the first Asian-American woman to serve on the city council. And the 11th word was redrawn to include a majority of Asian-American voters. And I think the fact that she finished essentially neck and neck with Chicago police officer Anthony Ciaravino um, surprised a lot of people. And I think that that also speaks to just how sort of determinative this crime issue was. Um, Anthony Ciaravino is off, is an officer. He campaigned in a fire truck that he rented and drove around the 11th Ward. And he used a picture of himself in uniform um, 
patrolling a protest and, you know, and is now under um, internal investigation for doing so because that violates departmental policy. So that is just going to be, I think, a really fascinating race to watch. Yeah, Yeah, you see, I mean, the other interesting runoffs, 11 being one of them, are um, or or just the way that Lightfoot's appointed city council members did in in these races. Timmy Knudsen in the 43rd Ward is headed to a runoff. Um, You know, we saw Annabella Barca lose her election in the 12th Ward. These are, you know, members of the city council who were appointed by Lightfoot and presumably given a leg up in that election, um, in the election, because they were able to start providing constituent services, getting their name out there. Um, But none of them won outright. And then Um, You know, you do have some incumbents who were elected in 2019 who have not yet uh, won their seats. You have um, the first ward still undecided. You have the 36th ward with Alderman Gilbert Villegas. Of course, he had a really tough reelection challenge because he led the, you know, fight against the um, Rules Committee and Black Caucus map in in the city council. And then when he lost, he ended up with that snake ward that we all, you know, remember the seesaw that runs on Grand Avenue um, and you know he's he's also headed to a runoff after I'm sure like many miles driving up in <laughs> that skinny line along Grand yeah. Avenue trying to um, trying to win over those voters. votes yep. well uh, there were also candidates on Tuesday's ballot for a brand new government position uh, the police district councils uh, as we head to a break here Maudlin um, do you believe the police district councils could mean real reform I think for the first time, we're going to see community input, and that is going to bring reform. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is Maudlin Iagerica, recently retired columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. Also with us, WBEZ's Mariah Wolfel and WTTW's Heather Sharon. We'll be right back with more of the Weekly News Recap. This is Reset. I'm Susie Ahn, and for Sasha Ann Simons. And we're back with more of our weekly news recap, giving you a closer look at the week's top stories across Chicago and Illinois. Before the break, we took a deep dive into the results from the aldermanic races in Tuesday's election, but we still have more to get to. Our panelists today are WBEZ politics reporter Mariah Wolfel, WTTW's Chicago politics reporter Heather Sharon, and Madeline Iagerica, recently retired columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. All right. So police superintendent David Brown turned in his resignation Wednesday. And before we dive into that discussion, Heather, can you update us on the fatal shooting of an officer that happened that same day? Well, the man accused in that shooting has was just held without bail. He is still hospitalized with a head wound. Um, but it, it seems as if that this incident began with a call to 911 by the, the suspect's girlfriend mm-hmm. calling for help. The police responded. And apparently, um, in what is a truly horrifying turn of events, it appears that this fatal shooting and exchange of gunfire occurred while there were students at a nearby oh. school on a playground, and those students had to take cover underneath um, the playground equipment. And um, it's, you know, my heart breaks for the officer and his wife and his entire family, as well as those children who were exposed to that truly traumatic event. Yeah. And this was the first officer killed in the line of duty since Officer Ella French's death in the the summer of 2021. And, you know, some people may remember police officers turning their backs on Lori Lightfoot when she visited the hospital 
following that shooting. Yeah, it was quite a a one-two punch of David Brown announcing his, you know, his resignation, uh, you know, a day after the mayor lost her re-election bid and then an officer being killed in the the line of duty. Um, Just a a really just mind-boggling turn of events. And of of course, they could not have foreseen that that timing because David Brown and, and Lori Lightfoot had certainly already agreed on his resignation and the date that he would announce it. And, and um, you know, she stuck by him knowing that uh, he was going to leave. Um, and so it was horrible that on that same day that we had this tragedy. It's just a really bad look, you know? Yeah. It's like la- no leadership. Yeah. A void. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, that's a tough one. Well, I mean, going back to the resignation, um, I mean, Mariah didn't really come as a big surprise, right? No, I think, um, you know, news broke a few weeks ago that David Brown had been, you know, telling his top brass to kind of prepare, um, you know, what would be the statement about his top accomplishments. So, uh, you know, after every single mayoral candidate saying that they, you know, would get rid of him immediately and then um, that it becoming clear that his main supporter who kept him on, Lori Lightfoot, would no longer be on herself, um, it was it was a matter of time. You know, mayoral candidates uh, calling out the top cop during the um, the campaign. I mean, is that pretty much standard procedure during a campaign or, or did it say something about David Brown specifically? Well, I think the fact I mean, every mayoral campaign is going to come in and, and, you know, change up the administration. They're going to want their own appointees. You know, there are some carryovers at times, but it, it's, you know, not uncommon for people to want to appoint their own, um, you know, department heads. But I think what was telling was just how, you know, strongly uh, candidates came out against David Brown. It was it was, you know, every single one of them. And um, and, you know, almost any time you asked about crime in the city of Chicago, which was obviously a huge thing on the campaign trail for every candidate, it was, you know, the number one thing was get rid of David Brown on, on day one. Him and I think CTA President Dorval Carter have gotten the most heat among all of the, you know, cabinet level mm-hmm. uh, positions. Yeah, Maudlin. And, you know, I think this is less about David Brown. The fact that they all came for him was less about David Brown and more about Lori Lightfoot. Um, I will reiterate that crime was low-hanging fruit, yeah. and David Brown was low-hanging fruit. You don't gain anything from saying, oh, the crime is so bad, I'm going to get rid of the superintendent. No, this is about Lori Lightfoot. So you've got to show that Lori Lightfoot made bad decisions and that her people are bad. So, you know, as far as David is concerned, I think that, you know, he, both he and Lori came in to a problem that was entrenched and had that we have grappled with for decades. And I will continue to say that Lori Lightfoot inherited this problem. There was no way it was going to be taken care of in four years. And all of these people who are saying, I am going to save Chicago from crime, are full of it. That's, I'm going to, I would say that to anyone. They are full of it. It's low-hanging fruit. It's simple buzzwords to reel people in. But people want change. They mm-hmm. want change. And they're willing to take a chance. But trust me, none of them are going to change this problem overnight. Lori Lightfoot could not, and they could not. We just need to try something different. That's what people are voting for. 
Yeah. Well, both Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis say they want to pick a superintendent from within the ranks of CPD. Uh, David Brown came from Texas. Uh, Maudlin, what do you make of them saying they choose from within the ranks? You know, again, um, uh, some of some people are, are, are saying the things that people want to hear. Um, Vallis's statement is very, very well. Well, it's cloaked. I would Love to choose from within, but it's all about who's the best candidate. So, you know, I do not trust that he's going to hire from within. Um, I think that both of them are going to espouse hiring from within because it's what people believe in, particularly community members at the grassroots level. They want to see someone who knows their city, who knows their neighborhoods, and who knows the problems and can relate to them. And so the the, the candidates are going to say what people want to hear. I think it would be a good thing, but I do not actually believe that any one of them can guarantee that. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the fact of the matter is they're not going to be solely responsible for the search or choosing the next superintendent. The, um, you know, seven uh, appointed board, um, board, uh, forget the name of it now. The Council District Commission for Public Safety (laughs) and Accountability. accountability. (laughs) Um, You know, they will have to conduct a search and propose three candidates to the mayor. If the mayor doesn't want to choose from those candidates, they've got to go back, you know, send different names. And um, the head of that task force, Anthony, driver said that they will be conducting a nationwide search. And so I think the mayor will have to, um, you know, might very well end up having to consider um, candidates from outside of Chicago. You also see that under Superintendent Brown, many leadership roles in CPD left their posts. And so the question of whether there is a qualified candidate to choose from who's ready to go um, to lead this department on day one, I think it's also a valid question. I, I also think that the sense that there, that to promote from within is some sort of panacea to the crime issue mm-hmm. it is on its face factually incorrect. The last police superintendent to be re- promoted from within was Eddie Johnson, who retired mm-hmm. under just a massive scandal yep. involving, you know, uh, you know, drunken driving and, you know, improper relations with 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 his people reporting to him. There's also, I think, um, a, a significant, uh, the, you know, the mayor's hands when it comes to to directing the Chicago Police Department are tied in a significant way by the, the federal court order requiring right. the department to reform. So even if Paul Vallis wins and comes into office, he's been very critical of the, the foot pursuit policy that was put in place after the police shooting of Adam Toledo and Anthony. Alvarez, he does not have the authority to undo that policy. That has to be approved by the federal judge. Now, certainly he can use his bully pulpit and he can sort of, you know, sort of, you know, demand changes. But it is a a very limited sort of ability to sort of make, you know, sort of turn this Titanic on a dime. The other thing is, is that you're going to have a lot of questions from that commission about how whoever the next superintendent is will fulfill the terms of that consent decree. Um, the city has only fully complied with 3% of that of that order, and that order turned four years old last week. 3%. 3%. And I think this is sort of what makes crime and public safety such a difficult issue to talk about and and for us as journalists to cover because, and I've said this before, if you live in Lincoln Park, your biggest 
concern might be carjacking or street robberies. But if you are somebody who lives in Inglewood and you have a 13-year-old black son, you're worried about that son being the victim of unconstitutional policing. And you can't really solve one without the other, I don't think. And we heard very little from all of the candidates during the first round of voting about how they would improve that compliance with the consent decree, which is really designed to restore trust in the Chicago Police Department and to encourage people to ask police officers for help and to come for them and to provide information and to sort of create that virtuous circle. Hopefully we'll get a little bit more focus on that this time around. Well, you know, um, uh, going back to David Brown's legacy, I mean, he was kind of a pawn in the the campaign, but uh, Marlon, what do you think he'll be remembered for in Chicago? Well, I have to say that um, David Brown, even though, yes, he inherited this problem, he's going to be remembered for presiding over one of the worst violence eras in Chicago because his legacy will be tied to Lori's legacy. And um, and that's unfortunate because, again, you know, both he and Lori um, could not turn around a problem that had existed for decades and that mayor after mayor and superintendent after superintendent had failed to actually turn around. Um, so, so that's the negative. He is going to be remembered for this horrible era of violence um, and, and its pandemic uh, and, and George Floyd yeah. Um, manifestations. Yeah. Well, Mariah, where is uh, Brown headed to after he leaves Chicago? Maybe Dallas. <laughs> He's going to be the chief operating officer for a law firm that has seven offices in Texas, which is, you know, a choice for the leader of the third largest police department in the nation. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, um, yeah, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Who <laughs> 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 would? Well, um, as, as we uh, wind down here, um, were there any stories that you feel were underreported this week for any of you? Well, I think Madeline mentioned that Carrie Austin left the city council. She said in November that she would resign on March 1st. So now the, you know, 50,000 or so residents of the 34th Ward have no alder person and they have nobody that I know of who's running that ward office because Carrie Austin's chief of staff was charged with bribery alongside her. So, you know, I think um, it, it will be interesting because the, you know, Austin's lawyers told that they antici- they told the judge in her case that they anticipated that Lori Lightfoot would appoint whoever wins the 21st ward rates, which is now in a runoff, to serve the remainder of Carrie Austin's term mm-hmm. after the April 4th runoff. So Lori Lightfoot will get one more appointment to mm-hmm. the city council. Mm-hmm. And um, it is, you know, truly, um, you know, an ignominious end to Carrie Austin's really her lifetime of service. She was the second longest serving city council member and she was really sort of one of the, the first sort of black power brokers yeah. on the South Side. She led the budget committee for many, many years um, and is now sort of leaving very quietly. Yeah. Really quickly for you, Mariah Maudlin. Well, we do. We, uh, speaking of another retirement, we saw the top federal prosecutor in right. um, U.S. Attorney John Lausch ret- official retirement this week. He is the one behind, you know, the degradation of the, you know, Illinois political machine um, over the past few years. He oversaw the indictment of Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan and of Alderman Ed Burke to, you know, monumentally historic moments in, in Chicago political yeah. history. Yeah. What about for you, Maudlin? I think the Jesse Smollett um, filing, you know, oh, yeah. the fact that uh, after all of that drama and our city was glued to it, 
Um, he's he's now trying to, you know, turn it over with an appeal. So I think that, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I'd like to read more on what exactly he's claiming in that filing, and it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Well, that'll do it for the weekly news recap. Joining us today, it was independent journalist Maudlin Ihejerica, WTTW's Heather Sharon, and WBEZ's Mariah Wolfel. Thank you to you all.